Or let's go on to the 50-year-old woman. Okay, this lady was diagnosed four years ago with node-positive breast cancer. She was found to have a T1C N2A with three sentinel nodes and one of 11 non-sentinel nodes involved with tumor. She was ER positive, but at a low approximately 10%, and PR was borderline, HER2 was negative. She was treated with mastectomy, and this was followed by AC times 4, Taxol times 3. These were delivered in a dose-dense fashion. This was followed by a post-mastectomy left chest wall RT. She was on tamoxifen for a year, and then at the time that it was clear that she had undergone menopause, was switched to Femara. During the course of this time, she did have frequent follow-up visits, continued to feel well, but often at her own request had tumor markers, which started to gradually increase over the last six months. So in February of this year, she did have, because of an elevated tumor marker, she was restaged. Her exam was normal. Her blood chemistries were normal. But a PET scan was performed, which showed a solitary lesion in the right lower rib. At that time, she did get accelerated short-course radiation to that one rib lesion and has otherwise done well, although her markers never normalized. Subsequently, she received a dose of Zometa in March of this year. So at the time of her rib lesion being diagnosed, she was switched from Fermara to Aromacin and given one dose of Zometa. This was complicated by a very severe and rather prolonged flare reaction with severe bone pain and weakness to the point that for two or three days she was virtually unable to get out of bed to get to work without the assistance of her husband. No further Zometa was given, Aromacin was continued, and her acute bone pain was treated with Vicodin, heat, and a medrol dose pack. It subsequently subsided over the course of about 7 to 10 days, although she continues to feel diffusely achy and stiff three months later. What's going on in terms of her endocrine therapy? She continues on the aromacin. I switched her from Femara to aromacin. And just to clarify another thing, about how long after her chemo was over did she get the relapse? This occurred four years after the completion of dose-dense adjuvant therapy. So how long did she get the tamoxifen? She received tamoxifen from June of 2005 through June of 2006, at which point she was switched to the aromatase inhibitor because at that point we knew she was menopausal. And was the bone lesion biopsied? The bone lesion was not biopsied. So Kathy, what did you see when you visited with this woman and what do you think were some of the issues here in her case? Well, she has a lot of issues, and she's a very interesting, very stoic lady. She works at a very physical job for at least 50 hours a week and really has her hands full at home. It's difficult to be absolutely concrete that she has metastatic disease, and I could not quite get a sense of her understanding if she really thinks she has metastatic disease that has no potential for cure, if that's still a very big worry but has not been conclusively proven. 
Now, at the time, she had one isolated rib lesion. What was seen on the PET scan was consistent with the increasing tumor markers, which had been obtained sequentially and had been going up. So this was not a diagnosis based on a single value by any means. I think in retrospect, Pat's wishing she had biopsied the bone lesion. I certainly am. You know, sometimes in our desire to not put patients through a painful procedure for what seems like it will either be low yield or will only confirm what we already know, in hindsight, you look at a missed opportunity. There's no point in biopsying this thing now. It's been radiated. So if it's negative, you still don't know. Has it always been negative or was radiation successful? It's not likely in an area that's going to be radiated that you're going to get good tissue to repeat receptors, which is really an important goal for her. At this point, it's also a little confusing to figure out what is causing her trouble. I mean, she had profound difficulty with fatigue and diffuse bone pain, but she switched to a different hormone therapy and got her first dose of Zometa concurrently. This sounds way out of proportion for what I would expect for the usual Zometa infusion reaction. It sounds much more like a hormone therapy flare reaction. Those have been reported with AIs. She's still having difficulty that now to me sounds more like classic AI stiffness, arthritic complaints. But she didn't have that when she was on the letrozole for four years? No, she did not. No, and I asked her about that. This is more than she ever had with letrozole. She's also having some diarrhea, which she dates to having started when she started the aromasin, and that's another side effect that's been reported more with aromasin than with the other AIs. So we talked a bit about switching her hormone therapy to see which of those things get better, to really separate what's aromasin, what might be other things, and if that goes well, to then think about giving Zometa or Pimidronate another whirl with pre-medications to see if there's a way to get the benefit of bisphosphonate for her. Because I just could not clearly separate in my own mind which of the two drugs was the bigger player in how poorly she did for those first week or two. When you talk about another type of hormone therapy, what were you thinking about? So I think there are a lot of options. It would be reasonable to switch her back to a different AI. It would be reasonable to put her back on tamoxifen. She had a year of tamoxifen. We didn't delve into that in detail, but it didn't sound like she had major difficulties with it. It would also be quite reasonable to put her on fulvestrin, especially if she gets back to a bisphosphonate. I think any of those are reasonable options because I'm primarily looking at switching because I'm concerned she's having side effects from the AI she's currently on more than concern about progression of her breast cancer at this point. What's her state of mind, Pat, as she's going through all these things? It sounds like a pretty rough time, nothing to mention, just being diagnosed with metastatic disease. Right now, I think her major concerns are less the metastatic issue than the diffuse arthralgias, myalgias that she's having that are clearly interfering with her life and the quality of her life and her activities. She remains very concerned about metastatic disease and calls me the minute the marker is back. And unfortunately, despite counseling in different ways about the limitations of following marker therapy, she herself is pretty hung on it. And I think I can understand where she's coming from. What's the marker that you're using and how high is it right now? The marker is a CA2729 which when she completed all of her adjuvant therapy was 24, had been as low as 19 until about a year ago, started to creep up into the 30s. In February of this year, creeped up as high as 53. And I said, you know, just 
don't get excited. Let's just repeat it. Well, it kept going up, and it was 55 at the time that we initiated the repeat staging. Unfortunately, after the staging and after the radiation and after the Zometa and after the change in her CIRM, it still remains elevated at 59. Not a dramatic increase, but certainly a steady uptick from her baseline. What type of work does she do and what kind of family situation? She actually manages a gas station, a service station, and pretty much works throughout the night. So she is doing a lot of heavy lifting, cashiering. She says she's got to lift cartons of cigarettes up and down. She is married to a very supportive husband, but it's basically just the two of them. So I have to ask you, Kathy, it's been hard to find a lot of new, exciting endocrine stuff. I've always been interested in fulvestrin. God, we've been talking about that for so many... I can remember in the early 90s, I think we were talking about it. I always thought it was going to pan out to be something pretty cool, but it hasn't been too exciting. But then I started to hear stuff over the last year about high-dose fulvestrin. And I don't mean loading, I mean high, like 500 milligrams a month. What do you know about that? What do you think about some of the data that's coming out in that? So the difficulty with fulvestrin has always been that in a pharmacologic sense, it's not really a drug. It's very insoluble. The limits put on the amount given in the original trials were driven more by concerns about people needing multiple injections and how big a volume could you give in an injection rather than any good dose-finding studies, whether they were dose-finding looking at parameters of efficacy or pharmacologic effect or pharmacokinetics. And particularly in larger ladies, there has always been a concern that if you're just giving patients a dose a month, it will take three or four months to get up near steady state. So if you have someone who's symptomatic or has more rapidly progressive disease, even if the drug ultimately is going to be effective, you may not be able to wait long enough to get up to those levels. There's also been concern that the dose may be too low overall. It may be particularly too low for some of our larger-sized patients. So the recent studies, still fairly small in the size of randomized phase two studies rather than large phase three studies, looked at using an escalating loading dose schedule and then continuing patients on 500 every four weeks, suggesting that that got more efficacy for more patients than the traditional 250 every four weeks that was its label approved dose. I think that's not surprising. I wonder, though, if it's taken too long to get this point. Too many people have had not terribly positive experiences with it because of these issues, because it's frequently used and people have progressed on other hormone therapies for it to ever be able to recover and regain momentum. I think its other advantage, though, Neil, may be that it does not seem to have the arthralgia-myalgia issues associated with it. So for someone like this woman, who really seems to be struggling, at least with the aromasin, if she has similar troubles with a different AI, I would have a very low threshold to put her back to tamoxifen or think about this as a way of getting her effective endocrine therapy without the toxicity that right now is pretty limiting to her. It's always so hard to look at new reports, particularly when you don't really have the definitive phase three data you want. Any gut reaction, Kathy, to these early data coming out? I mean, does it look like it's a significant clinical advantage that they're seeing? You know, it's significant clinical advantage is always in the eye of the beholder. If I'm a woman who's responding to higher doses who might not have gotten benefit to lower doses, it sure would seem beneficial to me 
The problem is knowing who that is or how many ladies that is. I think most of us at IU have given people an escalated loading schedule for quite a while now. We've not continued the 500 every four weeks, mainly because of concerns that that won't be reimbursed and patients will be getting a huge bill. We've had less difficulty getting the loading doses approved and covered. But long term, I think that is going to be another limiting barrier in people being able to use the drug in what might be a more optimal way to use it. It'll be interesting to see how this research comes out. And also there's trials out there looking at AIs plus fulvestrin. Any of them close to reporting that you know about? I know about the SOFIA trial. I think it's an interesting idea. I think that may be a trial where whether it's a positive or negative trial will depend on which endpoint is of interest to you. There were some combination hormone therapy trials done way back in the day that suggested you could get slightly higher response rates, but at the cost of more toxicity and no improvement in longer term outcomes. So I wouldn't be surprised if this is fairly similar. But we are not participating in this SOFIA trial, Neil, so I'm not quite certain where it stands and when we might see data from that important trial. Pat, as you look forward in this woman's case, I mean, you could anticipate, hopefully not for a long time, but who knows, that at some point, maybe the endocrine therapy is not going to be that helpful and you'll be thinking more about chemo. And of course, it's going to depend on her symptoms and locations and stuff like that. But any sort of general thoughts about how you transition patients from hormone therapy to chemotherapy, plus or minus Bev? Ultimately, I really approach this on a case-by-case situation. Certainly, all things being equal, I will continue to try to exhaust hormonal therapies on her. I think at such point in time as that is no longer feasible, and hopefully that'll be many years from now, so we'll have so many more new regimens and studies out, I would certainly be thinking about incorporating bevacizumab, depending on what the status of her disease is. Right now, at the very worst, and we are not even sure, unfortunately, whether this is the scenario, at the very worst, she has solitary bone-only disease. And so the aggressiveness of systemic therapy is going to be tailored that way. So I guess, Kathy, we've talked about this a lot over the years. I just kind of use it as an excuse to ask you what you think about the Ribbon 1 data that was presented at the ASCO meeting recently. But I mean, it really is true that I think a lot of people up until now have thought about capecitabine, they've thought about a taxane, and then the question is, which taxane and BEV? the issue of capecitabine and BEV. Can you talk a little bit about Ribbon 1, what was presented, what you thought about it, and how you think it's going to impact people's decision-making? Sure. Well, I'll tell you from the beginning, I don't think Ribbon 1 actually addresses your question. So Ribbon 1 was for patients receiving first chemotherapy for metastatic disease. They could have received any number of hormone therapies as would have been appropriate for them. It had a bit of an odd design. So you chose your chemotherapy from amongst a menu of seven options, one of which was capecitabine, two of which were every three-week taxane monotherapies, either docetaxel or the nanoparticle albumin-bound paclitaxel on an every three-week schedule. You could not have selected a weekly taxane schedule. Or an anthracycline-based combination regimen of which there were four, essentially AC, EC, FAC, or FEC. There was then an analysis plan that was, I found a bit odd. So you look at capecitabine individually, 
capecitabine with Bev or with placebo, lump all of those taxane and anthracycline choices together and look at those with Bev or placebo to make it palatable for patients and their physicians, a two-to-one randomization to Bev or placebo. The reason I don't think it addresses your question is that there are inherent differences in the patients in those two groups, driven by when people tend to use capecitabine as their first choice of chemotherapy versus a taxane or an anthracycline. But, you know, there has been this question. I can remember actually interviewing you after your capecitabine presentation at San Antonio. How many years ago was that? A depressing number. <laughs> I remember you were depressed that day. I but... was not having a good day that day, Neil. <laughs> but, yeah, because that trial in advanced disease, you know, was negative or, well, I don't know, maybe it wasn't negative. And then you had... The Excalibur data was presented, but just about this issue of whether it makes sense to add Bev to keep cytobine, don't you think Ribbon brings something to the table there? Oh, absolutely. That question, it clearly answers. So in both of those groups, there was a clear improvement in response weight and progression-free survival with the addition of Bev. They also, in data that they did not show, but I have seen at least informally, they have broken out anthracycline from the taxane components in that combined arm, and each individually also looks favorable, though the statistical power starts getting smaller and smaller. So I have absolutely no difficulty concluding from Ribbon 1 that for a patient needing first chemotherapy, for whom capecitabine would be your preferred choice of chemotherapy for that patient, for all of the reasons that go into making decisions about chemotherapy. I think you could easily tell that patient you would expect greater benefit for a longer period of time with the addition of bevacizumab. But the question you ask is, is it better with a taxane or capecitabine? And it really can't address that because there's so many differences in the patient population that that you can't directly compare the response in PFS between those two different groups. So I'm curious, Pat, how BEV plays out in your practice in terms of breast cancer, in terms of how you use it. I don't know if there are any reimbursement issues that are important to you. And what have you been doing specifically when you use capecitabine in metastatic breast cancer in terms of BEV? Well, up until this summer's ASCO meeting, we have not been using capecitabine with BEV. But I would certainly, based on the ribbon data, give it very serious consideration when I use it in first-line metastatic disease. And of course, in a patient like this who's already been exposed to a taxane, obviously we're looking at a five-year disease-free survival. Retreatment with a taxane wouldn't be entirely irresponsible, but either way, I think I would probably incorporate BEV. You know, certainly we participate in ECOG in 5103, and we're trying to get patients on to that study where it's being used in the adjuvant setting. To date, from the reimbursement issue, for the metastatic patients, it has not been a major stumbling block, fortunately. So I've got to ask you, Kathy, because Pat brought up your study, the adjuvant BEV study, and I'm curious where things are, and also whether or not the colon data that was presented by Norm Walmark, the NSABP trial that was, quote, negative, your thoughts about that, and is there any relevance to, say, breast or lung? So 5103 is enrolling patients very well. We're actually a bit ahead of our projected accrual goal in status. We are currently projected to finish accrual to that trial in April of next year, that projection has been slowly actually coming down, moving earlier. So I can tell you the CO8 press release and now viewing of the data in the presentation has had no noticeable impact on our accrual whatsoever. 
We've had a lot of discussions about what the impact of the COA data on the design of 5103 is or should be. And we think it should have no impact on the design of 5103, specifically because 5103 is the only adjuvant trial that actually includes in its design an assessment of two different bevacizumab durations of therapy. I actually think in some ways people have tried to make too much about the CO8 data. A trial that gives people no therapy or one duration of therapy by definition cannot give you information about the relative value of different durations of therapy. It simply does not have data to address that question. And there are two equally valid competing hypotheses, one of which says you need to give it longer and there's more benefit to be gained, one of which says you get all of the improvement during the short duration of combined chemotherapy, but that is not of great enough magnitude or long enough lasting to carry the day. And the CO8 data is entirely consistent with both hypotheses. So because our design includes an assessment of duration, we were not willing to give that up. I know some will argue that both durations are too short, and they might be right. If so, we might have some data to suggest that and to give further support for looking longer. You know, there were practical issues as well. The, our trial is less than a year from completing accrual. Trying to think about different durations and amending the trial at this point would take a minimum of six months to get the trial amended, by which point we are nearly done. You'd have to make decisions about what to do for people who were in the midst of therapy or had finished and how long ago they had finished until you would no longer offer them opportunity to continue. Their willingness to continue or come back to therapy is not going to be random. So it really complicates our ability to answer what in the current design is a very clean question. 